John Brahm. Uh, my name is Jack Cornfield, and if we haven't met, I'm one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock. And also, I guess in India, India they would call us Guru Bai, that is, brothers in, um, of the same teacher, uh, uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah. Um, and we both started pretty early. Ajahn Brahm said he ordained in 1975. So he's been a monk for a very long time. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and he's still, uh, still doing it. I, on the other hand, am a fallen monk who ordained before him but couldn't quite stand the uh, fire or whatever it was. Or the ice, I think, is more like it. Anyway, um, and it's a, it's a real delight to welcome you all here to Spirit Rock. As you can see, we're in the middle of a little bit of building because these lovely, this lovely community hall, which has been here for about 25 years, um, the county has decided that it's also the host for squirrels and many, many other creatures that live in the walls and it's falling apart that we actually have to build real buildings. So next time Ajahn Brahm comes, we can host him in a, in a new, and no, no kangaroos either, sorry to say. Um, so to say a few things very briefly about Ajahn Brahm, um, he's one of the most uh, important Western disciples of um, Ajahn Chah and has, as you know, a very large community in Australia, has written a number of books and has a wonderful sense of humor. Um, and, and something else that's kind of important and interesting, I think, is that um, when you engage in Dharma practice, you find that um, different teachers will emphasize different aspects of the path, the ones that worked for them. Um, also, very often, those teachers will say, I have really the only best way, and the other ones are, you know, not quite as good as mine. But in fact, they all turn out to be part of a mandala, um, some who emphasize concentration, and some who emphasize wisdom, and some who emphasize just being mindful as you walk through the day, um, or noticing the states of mind, like Utejaniya Saida, who'll be here later this year. Um, uh, and Ajahn Brahm, one of the things that you've done, which is really interesting, is take the wisdom teachings of Ajahn Chah, but also add to them a focus on concentration and jhana, which wasn't his focus, but is a great gift that you brought to the teachings that you offer. Um, and Ajahn Brahm has done something else really interesting, um, taking a new direction. He was the uh, first major Western abbot, um, and certainly within this monastic, forest monastic community from Thailand, to ordain um, bhikkhunis, or fully ordain women as nuns. Um, yay, yes. For which he took a great deal of flack and was vaguely excommunicated. Um, <laughs> which seemed to suit him rather well, as a matter of fact. Um, so he's a, you know, it, it, one of the things that becomes important as a teacher is that you really follow your heart, and you follow once you become a carrier of the lamp of the Dharma, that you follow to the best you can what you know to be liberating and true. Um, and in doing that, I think he's really supported um, the next generation, the next awakening that Buddha's Buddhism and Buddha's disciples have needed again in the world because there was a, a long, long period of extraordinary um, nuns and laywomen as teachers and masters. Um, and then because of the patriarchy of um, some of these systems and countries, it got 
um, oppressed, let us say. Um, so I really celebrate what you've done in that way and in, in, in all of your teachings and welcome you very much to Spirit Rock and to the community that's come out to um, listen to your jokes and practice with you um, and be delighted in the, in, the, in the Dharma. So thank you. Okay. <coughs> Oops. These are made for jackets. <laughs> Minus robes. Got to find a. There you go. How's that? Okay, it won't last. Any chair. So welcome everybody to coming to today's uh, whatever it is. <laughs> so. <laughs> So as everybody would know, because many of you have listened to me on YouTube, you don't plan anything, you just allow the day to unfold. It's supposed to be something to do with Buddhism, <laughs> maybe a little bit of meditation, but mostly to help uh, people become happier, more peaceful, more understanding about their life and about so the Dhamma. So it is true that I was with Ajahn Chah for many years and people asked me why did I go and stay with a monk like that, and it was because of his name. Because <laughs> I was born in England, and I like tea, and anybody with a name called tea in Asia, Cha, was my type of monk. <laughs> and also, these monks I got to know and really respect, they also had a sense of humour. Because sometimes I remember being a Buddhist when I was only 16 and going to the talks of these monks and other teachers and they were so boring. <laughs> they would never ever tell a joke. <laughs> and if you did laugh, they would be so serious, you felt so guilty about <laughs> laughing. And there's something missing there because in the Dhamma, it's supposed to make you happy it's supposed to make you light-hearted, and it's supposed to give harmony towards people. And a spiritual path without laughter, I don't think is much of a spiritual path at all. So I know that Jack did one of his books, uh, A Path with a Heart. This is a path with a laugh. <laughs> and that sort of rhymes. <laughs> a path with a laugh. <laughs> And that's really important for people, because life is miserable enough as it is, and you don't want to spend your Sundays getting more miserable. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So here we're going to teach the Dhamma in a way which makes people peaceful and happy and light-hearted. The whole idea of being light-hearted means you, know, you don't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. And you can just about learn how to laugh about anything. Okay, first bad joke. Your government. <laughs> That's not the joke yet, but it's close enough. And sometimes people ask, how come these people 
get actually elected to your government, to be your representatives. And there's a story I heard a long time ago of the selection panel, selecting people who would stand for Congress in a, one particular state. And they narrowed down the list of possible candidates to three. And they gave them the last test, an interview, with all of the senior members of their party. And the first can potential candidate came in for the last interview and said, we're just going to ask you one simple question. Tell us the answer. What is two plus two? And the candidate got out their smartphone, got their calculator out. Four. Very good. Next candidate. The next candidate came in. The same question to keep things equal. What is two plus two? He was smart. He said straight away, four. Very good. Send in the next candidate. And they asked the third candidate the same question. What is two plus two? And without any hesitation, the third candidate said, it is whatever you tell me it is, boss. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he's the one who stood for Congress. <laughs> Which is, why do people have to follow orders and follow what they're told? Because even in Buddhism, can't we actually have integrity and stand up for what we believe is right, rather than what we're told? That's one of the reasons why we ordain bhikkhunis. So sometimes part of the spiritual life is being a rebel. Seeing things in a different way. Not the way you've been taught, but the way which is true and which makes sense to you. And it's true what Jack said, that you know, being a rebel and having been excommunicated, it's one of those things I wanted to tick off in my life. <laughs> now I've done that, and one thing about being excommunicated, now you're excommunicated, you can do whatever you like, because you can only be excommunicated once. <laughs> So now I'm free to teach whatever I think is appropriate. And you know, that's the way it should be anyway. You know, because hierarchies, what hierarchies do and what authority does is tell you what to believe rather than teaching you how to find out. And that's so important, you know, in the Dhamma that you know, the, the, even the Buddha said, Buddhas only show the way. It's up to each one of you to actually to follow the path as you find it works. So in today's talk, I'm going to be rebellious again, and I'm going to tell you many things which you thought were true, and challenge them. Maybe they're not so true. And the first thing is with meditation. This is an important part of my mission in life, is actually to please never call meditation concentration. That is the wrong word, it's a bad translation from the Pali, the part of the word samadhi never means concentration. It was just because 1,500 years ago a fellow called Professor Rice Davids, the first person to translate these uh, teachings or the Pali into English, he was the one who was a stroke of genius to call sati mindfulness. Very brilliant translation. But when he got to samadhi, he called it concentration, and he's responsible for a lot of people who think they can't meditate because you can't concentrate. And a lot of people have a lot of stress when they try to meditate because they are trying to concentrate. 
Now, if meditation meant concentration, then this Spirit Rock Meditation Center would be a concentration camp. (laughs) (laughs) And we all know the connotations of that. It would be California's equivalent to Guantanamo Bay, where volunteers sit for hours in prolonged stress postures. (laughs) Exactly. That's what you have to do here. Come and sit down in, what's it called? Uh, Stress stress positions, yeah, uncomfortable ones. They use that for torture. What are you doing that for? And number two, all of your walking meditation. Have you been on retreats before? And people doing all this very mindful, slow walking? This is true story. We had somebody else teaching a meditation retreat. I've got my own retreat center just opposite our monastery. State-of-the-art retreat center. Everyone with their own rooms, every room with its own ensuite. There we go. Have you got your own ensuites here in Spirit Rock? (laughs) Now this is really important because when you go on a meditation retreat, you want to be comfortable. And so having your own sort of little toilet and ensuite gives you that extra little bit of comfort which makes the meditation so much more successful. So anyway, uh, we were having some other people using our meditation retreat center, and they were doing their walking meditation time, and a kid, you know, the family, they came to our monastery to offer some food, they went over to see the retreat center, and the kid came running towards me afterwards, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahm, in your retreat center, over the road, there's zombies, <laughs> zombies in the retreat center. <laughs> because when you do the slow walking meditation, <laughs> it looks like zombies. And this kid called it, the zombies have invaded your retreat center, because that's what it looks like. <laughs> so, so now we call that walking meditation zombie <laughs> meditation. <laughs> but anyhow, so let's going to um, challenge a few stereotypes, which is you know, part of your job as a religious leader. And concentration. Concentration is not the right word for samadhi. And in fact, I've uh, said this quite a few times already in this trip, and I'll keep on saying this, because it's important for your well-being. Are we okay, boss? Just open some windows, because it feels a little warm here. Yes. Let's chill out at Spirit Rock. <laughs> Keep it cool. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, checked out with uh, some of the people who know Chinese better than I do, because these days we have more information about what the Buddha taught. Not only do we check these Pali sutras and get reasonably good translations, but we can also compare them to how the ancient Chinese pilgrims took those texts 1,500 years ago, 1,800 years ago from India, and took them over to China and translated them, and it gives us another record of what the Buddha actually taught. And the word samadhi, the word for meditation, over in the Chinese argomas, the Chinese traditions, they're always translated as guanxu, which probably pronounced it (coughs) totally wrong, but it does mean stillness, not concentration. And that changes one's whole attitude to what one is supposed to be doing when one meditates. It's not concentration, 
it is stillness. Concentration takes a lot of effort. Stillness takes a lot of letting go. And the right efforts in Buddhism is not to attain something, not to get something, but learning how to let go of things. To create the stillness in the body and in the mind. And in brief, similes, many similes, please excuse me for uh, people who have been following me around. These people I call my stalkers. Because yeah. <laughs> they heard this yesterday. <laughs> The simile, which is a very useful simile, is looking at your mind like a lake or a pond of water. And all of your thoughts, the things which are an obstacle to people's meditation, all of your thoughts are simply waves on the surface of the lake. And when there are waves on the surface of a lake, you can't see a clear reflection of the forest, or if it's at night time, the moon and stars in the heavens above. Even a small ripple will um, distort any reflection. But the time will always come, sooner or later, when the lake is perfectly calm, when it's still, when there's not even a ripple on the surface of the water. And then it becomes like a mirror. And when it's like a mirror, you see a perfect reflection of the moon and the stars in the heavens above. When the mind is still, then you see things as they truly are, which is translating almost verbatim, from what the Buddha said again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Samadhi pachaya yatabhuti yanadasana. From stillness you get insight. So the job of meditation is learning how to keep the mind still. And you cannot force the mind to be still. Now here is my usual explanation which you have seen at least two times already, but in Buddhism we always do things three times, <laughs> except for jokes, which I tell many times, same old jokes. But they're like golden oldies. And there's many other golden oldies here, we're golden oldies as well. This is gold, I'm old, <laughs> so are the nuns over there. <laughs> so, for those of you who haven't seen this simile before, like, say, pictures of, uh, speak a thousand words, it's a simile of the glass of water. Now, this water represents my mind, and my task is to keep my mind still, to stop it shaking. Because all those, those uh, irritations or disturbances manifest as, as thoughts. So I'm now going to hold the glass of water perfectly still. Has it become still yet? Because I'm not paying attention. Okay, I'm now going to be mindful. <laughs> Has it stopped moving yet? No. Because I haven't been concentrating. <laughs> what happens when I concentrate? Exactly. When you concentrate, your mind moves more. Have you ever noticed that? So, this is how many people meditate. Concentrating, 
being mindful. And it's not still yet. When's it going to get still? Please teach me how I can get this still. And it's such a simple solution. If I want this glass of water to be still, you put it down. Let it go, you stupid monk. That's nice actually being self-critical. But you know, my problem is, is you know, that when you get self-critical, you get very humble. And, I, and sometimes I wonder about humility, because we're supposed to be humble as monks and nuns. But what's the point of being humble if no one knows about it? <laughs> so if you are humble, flaunt it. So if you want to know what to call me, no, it should be Ajahn, Venerable, call me His Humbleness. <laughs> so anyway, what I've been doing that, when I stopped laughing and shaking this thing. Now, that glass of water. People at the front. How is it? Still. There's no way I could hold it that still, ever. No matter how long I practice. Because any doctors, nurses, biologists here, you know the nature of the arm, the muscles are always moving. There's no way you can hold it still. It's impossible. When we let things go, they become still all by themselves. It's brilliant. Now, stillness is what we're supposed to be doing. And then we can see beautiful reflections. It's like glass. Now, in order to be still, in order to, to let things go, you know, we have to learn how just to be aware of our mind and be kind to it in order to relax. So when I teach meditation these days, oh, I should actually go back because Jack mentioned Ajahn Chah, the teacher. This is how Ajahn Chah taught me because I remember him saying many, 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 many times that we meditate not to get something, to gain attainments. We meditate to let go of things. To see how many things we can renounce and let go of. We meditate to lose things. Which is why I say meditators, if you're a good meditator, you have to be a loser. So when people come up to me and say, Ajahn Brahm, you're a loser, I say, thank you for your wonderful praise. <laughs> and when you become a monk or a nun, we are big losers. <laughs> <laughs> and the biggest loser was the Buddha. He was the biggest loser. <laughs> so if you're meditating, you're meditating to be a loser. Losing all your pain and suffering, your attachments, all your stupid thoughts, losing your suffering, losing your guilt and your fear, losing all of your anger and craving, you're losing things. That's what we're meditating for, to be a loser. So in the foreword to my one of the books, I ended the foreword by saying, all of you who read this may all get lost. <laughs> May you lose your sense of self, your ego, and everything else. So that's the purpose, okay, to be a loser. 
<laughs> and so we're letting go of things. That's what uh, my teacher would say. And uh, also, he would actually give the simile. He'd be he wouldn't use the glass of water, that's my simile. He would put his hand up and start waving it around. And this, he said, was, represents a leaf on a tree. It only moves because of the wind. When the wind stops, the leaf moves less and less until eventually the leaf comes to perfect stillness all by itself because that's the natural state of a leaf on a tree. And he said this simile in the leaf represents the human mind. It only moves because something outside of it is making it move. And that is your desires, your cravings, your wanting. Even wanting something good makes the mind move. So he said the purpose of meditation is to protect the mind, like you protect the leaf from the wind. And if you protect the mind from the winds of wanting, then naturally your mind moves less and less and less until it comes to perfect stillness all by itself. So that becomes your job in meditation, to sit here and do nothing and wait for all that wanting to disappear and your mind to come to its natural state of stillness. So the effort is to protect the mind. Just like the effort to grow a tree in the garden is to protect it and nurture it. The tree grows by itself. Your job is to protect it from harm. And the job of a meditator is to protect the mind from harm, from interference. Let it go, leave it alone, and let it become peaceful and still. Now, of course, the biggest problem when people try to do this is that they try to do it. <laughs> they try to be still. They try to let go. They say to themselves, come on, let go, let go, let go. How many times I've got to tell you, let go. <laughs> so in order to teach people what we mean, we start off with our body. Because many of you are much more aware of your body than you are of your mind. So when we start with the body, how do we relax the body and bring it to a state of stillness? And we don't do that through force. We do it through the process of relaxation. So how do you relax the body? Let's have a simile of those of you who have children. And sometimes your children get anxious at night. Sometimes they shout, Mummy, I need a glass of water. They don't need the glass of water, they need the mom. And you tell them, go to sleep, darling. No, I can't go to sleep. So what does mom do next? Does mom grab the kid by the neck and say, go to sleep or else. You'll be in big trouble if you're not in sleep in five minutes. <laughs> If you did that to a kid, would the kid go to sleep? <laughs> of course they wouldn't, they get more tense. But have you seen people do that when they try to relax? Relax! I'm telling you, relax! 
that's counterproductive. So how do you get a kid to fall asleep at night? Number one, you make them feel safe. You know, in meditation, the feeling of safety is really important for you to be able to let go. Because one of the reasons people find it hard to let go in meditation, be still, is because they're afraid. They're afraid if I let go of all my defences, especially my thoughts, I might get in harm. But you don't have to worry at all. Because there's all these great stories of people who've got into the deepest of meditations and they have become invulnerable. People love tales of the supernatural. Here's a couple for you. One, everyone likes this stuff. One is actually from the texts. You know, sometimes people think these sutras are really boring. They can be extremely funny. Okay, here's, I'm going to go back to stillness in a moment, but here's the funniest story, which is in, of all places, the monastic Vinaya, the rules for monks and nuns. And I love telling this story because there are bhikkhunis here. It is the story behind the eighth Pajitya for bhikkhunis. <laughs> Long time ago, in the time of the Buddha, one of the monasteries was on the edge of the city. And in those days, they didn't have proper sewage systems. When people would urinate or defecate, it would go into a bucket. And it was a job of one of the nuns, early in the morning, to empty the toilet bucket and to clean up the toilets for the rest of the day. And there was one nun was on roster to do this, she was obviously a very lazy nun, because instead of throwing the bucket of excrement in the usual spot, it was more convenient for her to throw it over the wall of the monastery. It was early in the morning, but there was some law which is even older than the Dhamma. It should be part of the Dhamma. It's called Murphy's Law. <laughs> if it can happen, it does happen. There happened to be a gentleman who, yes, who was walking on the other side of the wall, dressed up, going to see the king in the palace. So when you go and see Obama or when you go and see the Queen of England, you don't just wear the sort of clothes you come to a retreat in. You're really well dressed. And he was walking along the road outside the monastery, thinking about the contract he was trying to get from the king, when suddenly, over the wall, came a bucket of shit. All over his head. Immediately he stopped thinking about his business because <laughs> he knew where that bucket of filth had come from and he was quite upset. In fact, he was extremely angry. In fact, he was cursing those bikunis. They're not real nice. Look what they've done to me. I've got a bucket of shit on my head because of them. And they didn't have electric street lights, they had these little torches which they had on poles to light the way in the early morning. 
So he grabbed one of those flaming torches and he ran into the Bikunis monastery. I'm going to burn the whole place down. I'm going to burn it down. Fortunately, there was another man who was a gatekeeper. And he said, where are you going? Look what's happened to me! With all this stuff dripping down his head. <laughs> those nuns did this to me. I'm not going to stand for this. And this man, you know, he really should have been a senator, this gatekeeper. <laughs> because he looked at this guy and said, what? You've been blessed? <laughs> this stuff comes from holy nuns. <laughs> Which is where we get the word in English. Holy shit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been blessed. Now, have you been to the temples where people give you holy water? This is even stronger, more powerful. <laughs> <He's>, and this, <laughs> this gatekeeper said, something amazing is going to happen to you today. Something wonderful is going to happen to you today. You're so lucky to be blessed like this. And I say this gatekeeper should have been a senator because this guy brought it. He believed him. And the gave said, look, look, go back home, get washed, get showered, get dressed again, go to the palace, I'm sure something good's going to happen to you. And so this man did that, he went to the palace, arrived late, but he got given this really lucrative contract from the king. And he went around afterwards saying all of his business colleagues, look, in business, if you want good luck, go to the nuns. And ask for the real blessing. <laughs> Any business people here? If you're starting a business, you want some good luck, now you know where to go. And <laughs> what to ask for. <laughs> but of course, the Buddha heard that. Nuns, come over here. And he said, you're really lucky that you had a gatekeeper who could you know, talk a person into thinking this is lucky. You're really lucky. And so he said, but in future, you must not do that. And so the eighth Pajita, you can read it for yourself, in the nuns' Patimolka rules, is a nun should not throw a bucket of shit <laughs> over the monastery wall. <laughs> it's actually there. <laughs> Check it out. So don't tell me Buddhism didn't have a sense of humor from the beginning. I hope you're keeping that rule. <laughs> you, need a ah, you need a monastery to be able to keep it. Very good. Very. <laughs> Do you have any buckets? <laughs> anyway, so, so back to the, the story of a like, bit of supernatural stuff. There was um, a monk in the time of the Buddha, many monks. He was meditating. Now, in the forest, and he was getting so still, so peaceful, now, in one of these deep jhanas, and two villagers came by. And as they came by, they saw this monk sitting there quietly, peacefully, and they couldn't see him breathing. Because that's what happens in deep meditation. You know, you don't need to metabolize because you're so perfectly still. 
So sitting in deep meditation, and they thought, oh my goodness, the monk is dead. <laughs> and they thought, what should we do? It was too far to take him back to the monastery, and they were busy anyway, and they were in the forest. There was lots of wood around. <laughs> yes, they made a funeral pyre, only took them half an hour, put the monk on top, they did whatever chanting they knew, lit the fire, and once the fire was, was going strongly, they knew the fire would do the rest of the work, they were not really needed anymore, so they went to collect their mushrooms and herbs, whatever else they were collecting in the forest, having cremated the monk. But the monk wasn't dead, he was just meditating. And this is in the Samyutta Nikaya. And the next morning they were really impressed when the monk came into their village on arms round. Not even his robes were, were burnt. So you don't have to worry about anything. You can keep it perfectly safe if you get into a deep meditation and we think you're dead and we go and cremate you. <laughs> when the guy opens the oven you say, Hi, still here. <laughs> you become invulnerable. Now, the modern story, because as monks we can't really tell all these tales of the supernatural, which you know, you've seen, there's some weird things happens, and I can tell about this monk now because he died a few years ago, so you know, he can't be famous anymore because he's dead. But this was an Indonesian monk who I met many years ago, and he, I, he was a powerful monk. He was a monk, I never saw this myself, but one of my friends, who was a, a princess in Thailand, and uh, she said that she was on a meditation day with him, and everyone had their eyes closed, and she felt something weird was happening, so she took a peek, and she said, and absolutely honestly, rays of light were coming out from the monk into one of the other meditators, like in the movies. But this was real, she actually saw it, freaked her out. Not imagining it, but seeing it. So this was that monk, and I know that monk, and that's quite possible. Because what he did, he was a young man in Indonesia, in Java, and he wanted to be like a, a rishi, like a hermit who goes into the jungles, lives very simply, and just does his stuff there. So he went into a part of Java, which was then you know, forested. And, oh, please uh, turn off your mobile phones, because if your mobile phone goes off during a talk, especially during a meditation, your mobile phone, your uh, smartphone makes bad karma. And in its next life, it'll be reincarnated as a parking meter. <laughs> which is the lowest form of life for technology. <laughs> Either that or a police speed camera, one of the two. <laughs> so anyway, this monk, he went into the jungle, sat down, and it's interesting how he described his experience. He said he was getting very peaceful, and he said a big star came to him, huge star. And you know, in the only way he could say English, he said he married that star. In other words, united with it, was right inside of it. When he came out of his meditation, it was actually many days later, and he noticed the jungle around him had changed. Something had happened. And he checked with the villagers and there had been a big storm and a flood and he'd been under a couple of meters of water for several days. Perfectly okay. No problem at all. 
Because in these deep meditations, you become invulnerable. So, if a major earthquake has come to San Francisco and you can't get out in time, if a big meteor from the earth is heading towards us and you can't escape, meditate. <laughs> and you will survive. <laughs> so I know that I've seen, same as in Western Australia where I live, in California there's very dangerous forest fires. And I've seen, I was going over to Placerville the other day, and seen all the signs. Now get your plan ready. Get two ways out. So one way is a normal way, the other way is a forest fire. <laughs> and that's way number two. So you become invulnerable. Now, I'm saying that not just to entertain you, but to say that the deeper you go in meditation, the safer you are. And because, you know, you are. I'm not sure why this works, but you are really protected. And sometimes even like aches and pains in the body. It's a strange phenomenon. Again, I don't know why this happens. I've got my theories. But if you meditate for half an hour, you may be a bit stiff. But if you meditate for three or four hours and get into deep meditation, you've got no aches and pains in the body at all. You're just totally free. And many sicknesses which people have, if you get into the deep meditations, many of those sicknesses just vanish as well. The power of samadhi, of stillness, is profound. And this is actually why it works, how it works. So I'm saying that to give you that sense of safety. Because if we don't have that feeling of safety, we'll never truly be able to let go and be peaceful enough for samadhi, stillness to happen. So you feel safe. And also, we're kind. Because if you are going to have a child, can't go to sleep at night, you know, make it feel safe. Maybe a nightlight. Check under the bed. There are no monsters under the bed. Or even better, have a bed which hasn't got a place underneath. Go straight on the floor so there's no places for monsters to hide. Whatever it is, make it safe. And then be kind to the kid. You know, you take your hand, you stroke the kid. It's all right, mummy's here. Okay, mum's here. And then when the kid feels cared for and safe, then the kid will be able to let go and fall asleep. Now that's precisely what we have to do when we meditate. Number one, feel safe. So on today you are safe. No fear, Ajahn Brahm is here. <laughs> and number two, have this wonderful kindness because it's kindness which relaxes you and fear and aggression that doesn't make you relax at all one of the nice things about some of the monks I live with they were really so kind they would not criticize you even though you deserve to be criticized Whenever I made a mistake, all the monks, I knew all the teachers, they would never criticize you, they would just laugh. And I made so many mistakes, I gave so much happiness to my teachers. <laughs> For example, my teacher Ajahn Chah. Now when I first went to Thailand, I couldn't speak any Thai. And so you just learnt on the job, and you made many mistakes. So his monastery was very poor in the early days. And so if you needed anything, you just have this big water jar 
anyone gave him anything, go in the jar, he needed anything, he'd look to see if it was there. So one day I needed some soap, just some soap to wash. I didn't, I ran out. And so I asked for some soap, but I never said the proper Thai word for soap, which is sabu. I said sapo, which is very close, but sapo meant pineapple. <laughs> so I thought I was asking for soap, but what Ajahn Chan or the other Thai monks heard was pineapple. And so he looked at me and asked, what do you want a pineapple for? And I said, to wash. <laughs> and he never let me forget that. He said, Ajahn Brahm, he's a monk who washes with pineapples. <laughs> he laughed so much. And I was so happy I could give my teacher so much joy. <laughs> so when you have kindness, instead of uh, always being criticized and put down, then you can relax. And I notice that's how we relax our bodies, with kindness and mindfulness. I made such a big thing about that, teaching in universities, about kindfulness. You've all heard mindfulness. That is so ten years ago. <laughs> if you want to be ahead of the curve, kindfulness. It's just adding kindness to mindfulness and you get this really potent mix which really, really works. And the kindfulness means you look at your body and you need to cough during meditation. Please cough. Have you been on meditation retreats where you're not allowed to cough? And if you do, we have in meditation what we call the volcano effect. A volcano is when the, the top gets all plugged up until eventually it explodes. And that's what happens in meditation retreats. People are sitting down and they I want to cough, I can't cough, I mustn't cough, I mustn't. You're plugging it up. It's going to blow. And when it, when it does blow, they can hear it all over the Bay Area. <laughs> it's really loud. And also what happens, just like a real volcano, you spray all this unhealthy stuff over everyone behind you, and in front of you, and to the side. So the volcano is, <laughs> please, if you want to cough, cough. Do it now, quickly, before it builds up power. <laughs> So why is that? People are control freaks. Instead of just coughing and getting it done with, they want to control. Thank you. Please more. Come on. <laughs> Communal coughing. Thank you. <laughs> enough. Stop this. That's enough. So instead of just coughing and getting it done with, we tend to control. Kindness and awareness, mind, kindfulness means, yeah, I need to cough. I'm going to cough. Or even during meditation, you know, your legs hurt. Move them. It only takes two or three seconds to mindfully, kindfully move your legs. And afterwards there's no more aches and pains. And then you can, you lose a little bit of momentum in your meditation, but you soon make it up in the next minute, and you're back where you were just before you moved your legs, but now without any pain. It's such common sense to do that. And so, I was a rebel, when people said, don't move, you know, I tried that, it didn't work, so I tried moving. 
there's a little saying for you, never allow all of your learning to stand in the way of truth. Everything you've been taught by monks like me, everything you've read, everything you've learned about meditation, sometimes the truth is different. And often people say, no, it can't be right. I was told, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And you always allow your learning to stop you experiencing the truth. Don't do that. Follow that wonderful inner truth, intuition, wisdom, whatever you call it. You know this is right. And afterwards, you, know, you look back at the teacher and say, yeah, that's what I told you, but you didn't understand it at the time. So always the truth is more important than your learning. So, you feel the body. How are you going to relax the body and bring it to a state of peacefulness? You move it, adjust it, make sure you're really comfortable. Postures. What sort of posture should you sit in when you're meditating? Whatever posture is comfortable for you. So you don't have to sit on the floor. Chairs are fine. I don't know where you got these chairs from, but in my retreat centre, <laughs> we did research and we found a chair which was the most comfortable for meditators. And we bought a whole heap of them. Not too high, not too low. Because sometimes people, this is California, US, can't we get some really high-tech meditation chairs? <laughs> One thing you can do. You know when people get sleepy during meditation? They start to nod. Seat belts. <laughs> so people aren't afraid of falling off when they get sleepy. <laughs> Just write a little coffee maker by the side if you get some sloth and torba, press the button, and you get a cup of coffee without having to leave your chair. Like in the hotel, in like the hospitals, you know, little urinals, so you don't have to get up to go to the toilet. <laughs> Do it right there. <laughs> that way you can sit for hours without having to worry about anything. What else can you have? Like, um, you press another little button. Have you ever been to Japan or Korea and seen these great toilets they have? And they're amazing. I don't know why people don't have these in the US. You know, you don't ever wipe your bum. You know, you press a little button, and a little nozzle comes out, and it shoots water exactly in the right place. I don't know how they managed to do that. <laughs> Add another little nozzle to alter the pressure, the warm or cold, whatever you want. And the first time you go to places like that, I'm sure you do that, I do that, you play with all the buttons. <laughs> they have it on Google, in Google Campus. I'm going to Google, I'm going to be playing with the buttons. <laughs> and lastly, another button, and they do, uh, was dry, dry air. It dries you everything. <laughs> so can't we use that sort of technology on meditation chairs? You know, sometimes you need to fall back, just like in the aircraft, you can get these little chairs, you can push a button and they go back, or forward, to the side. Maybe you can have another little button, you can have some headphones, you can get sort of advice. You know, any problem at all, you can press in, I'm feeling sloth and torpor. And on the headphones, you get the solution straight away. It's, you know, it's not called in-flight entertainment, it's called insight entertainment. <laughs> 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 
But anyway, the posture, however you're comfortable. Because all these years of teaching meditation and practicing meditation, the posture is never the same in two consecutive meditations. What I do, and I advise others to do, you close your eyes, you adjust your posture to be comfortable, you're aware and kindful enough to see what it needs to be done. And sometimes you need to move to the left, to the right, lean back, lean forward, whatever it is. But you ask the question. You don't follow the books or follow your teachers. How can I be more comfortable? And that's what you do. Now once your body is comfortable from moving, scratching, coughing, the next thing you do is to become so mindful and kind to even inner parts of your body. You learn how to relax them. And this is a fascinating part of meditation. Using kindfulness, you can relax almost anything. You, know, you can be aware of, say, if you've got indigestion. You can be aware of your intestines. There's a feeling there, a sensation there. You're aware of it. And then you add kindness. Because the mindfulness gives you the opportunity to get feedback. In other words, you can see how the sensations are changing. They never remain the same. They always get worse or they get better. You know, they change their form, but they're always um, changing. So you feel those sensations in the body. And because of mindfulness giving you feedback, you soon learn from that trial and error and the feedback mindfulness gives you how to relax inner parts of your body. There's one of my monks, he had a very sore back. He had always pain in his back when he meditated. So he went to the doctor, got to the specialist, they gave him an MRI scan of his back and found he had a congenital deformation of his spine. And the doctor said, look, the worst thing you can possibly do is to meditate. So you, know, you have to give up and do something else. He said, look, I'm a monk, that's my life. Can you do something? And he said, doctor said, no operation, no drugs possible. So he was really stuck with having this pain, which was stopping him doing the thing he loved. But he found this wonderful book giving a bit of advice about kindfulness, but in a different form. The person said, you have to be aware of some of the muscles on either side of your spine to get mindful of a place in your body which most people just do not know exists. And so this little exercise was getting your hand and rubbing on either side of the spine these muscles, hour after hour after hour, until you got sensitivity <coughs> to those muscles. Until you could feel those muscles without having to touch them. Because you know, neurologically what mindfulness does is it creates those connections in the brain. So you can become aware of something which most people are not aware of, muscles on either side of the brain. Once you have mindfulness of those muscles, you can try trial and error to see if you can move those muscles. And it took him many more weeks, and at will he could move the muscles, stretch them, relax them. And after he had that completed, then they said, exercise those muscles. Pull them, push them, pull them, push them, like you'd exercise any other muscles in the body. And he could do that at will, because mindfulness, feedback, trial and error, he had learned how to do that. And so he exercised those muscles until now, 
They are so strong that they compensate for the weakness of his spine and he can meditate without any problem. Now that's a good example of how mindfulness and some kindness can actually get aware of things in your body which most people are just not aware of. And once you have that awareness, you have some ability to heal, to balance, actually to let go of a lot of problems in life. So, with the mindfulness, you can feel the tummy muscles. You learn how to relax them and relax them and relax them. And you can overcome even uh, diseases like, uh, what is it, uh, chronic gut pain, what's it called? Chronic, as I, irritable bowel syndrome. So I always tell people, always follow your gut feeling, except if you've got irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> Don't be irritable. But you can actually relax things. And so there's many people with cancers. The cancers in their breasts, in their... Can I tell that joke I said earlier? People who bow too much. Men who bow too much, who prostrate too much, end up getting prostrate cancer. <laughs> Please don't be offended if you've got that. At least I know I won't be offending the women. <laughs> but anyway, so you can, it's amazing the sort of what you can do with your body with mindfulness and kindness, how it's incredible healing power, simply because it relaxes everything. When it relaxes everything, you can actually feel energies flowing through the body and doing its healing job. The kindness and mindfulness does that. And for ordinary people not really sick about this, sick about that, when you meditate, you sit down, you feel the body relaxing, 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 relaxing. Taking off all pressure, all tension from your body. And when the body is really relaxed, that is the very best posture, no matter how that is. And you feel it. Everything is at rest, peace, no pressure on you, no tension, no pushing, no pulling, no squashing. The body is at peace. Because when it relaxes, it's at peace. I know it feels damn good when your body's relaxed. I say many people, they go off to these resorts. You know, they go to Hawaii, sit on a beach. Why do they do that for? To relax. You don't have to spend all that money going to Hawaii to relax. <laughs> you can do it at home. You know how to relax. Why not? Because all you're really doing is learning how just to get the body, be aware of it, and just allow everything to become loose, healthy and free. And when you actually do that, it feels good. And this is an important part of meditation, is learning to accept, embrace and enjoy the pleasures of meditation. In this case, the pleasure of relaxation. No stress, no pain, no pressure. No one is, is like in these Zen retreats. Please excuse me when the person goes around the back with a big stick. I have to tell this story. I've told it a couple of times already on this trip. When I was in Hong Kong a couple of years ago, doing some teachings, and in a monastery where monks from all over were visiting, and there I got all the gossip of what's happening in this monastery and that monastery. It's lovely having gossip, so not to get a few of the gossip from the sisters over there, what's happening in the US, who's doing what. 
It's like it's not real gossip. It's called research. <laughs> gossip by another name. <laughs> so anyway, this monk from from mainland China, he told me this story, that there was a retreat by a, quite a well-known Chinese monk in mainland China, a Zen retreat. And during the retreat, they had the master walking behind all of the students with a big stick. And one of the women was nodding. So the master hit her on the back with a stick. She immediately got out her cell phone, turned it on and called the cops. (laughs) The Chinese police came. She made a complaint and they arrested the monk and took him off to jail. <laughs> True story. You can't do that in China, and I don't think you could probably do that in America. If you get hit on the back by a monk, <laughs> you, you can charge that guy for assault, and you'd probably go to jail. That monk is in jail now, apparently. But anyway, <laughs> what are you doing that for, anyway, hitting people during a retreat? Oh. Anyway, (laughs) when you're kind to yourself, it feels delightful. And I don't know why it is that people think that meditation should be suffering. And no pain, no gain. That is ridiculous. As I say, the Buddha taught Anapanasati. Now, Anapanasati means, Ana means along with, Pana, the breath, mindfulness. Mindfulness along with the breath. He did teach Anapanasati. But I've never ever heard him teaching Anna Pena Sati. <laughs> Not mindfulness along with pain. That's ridiculous. So, your body feels really comfortable and relaxed. When that happens, please enjoy the delight of relaxation. Because you'll find something happens. When you appreciate the delight of relaxation, you get more relaxed. It takes the ease of the body to a deeper level. You've never been so relaxed as when you appreciate the delight of relaxation. The body just rejoices and goes deeper into relaxation. That's great for your health, but it's also great for being able to let go of your body and teaches you what letting go really is. You do it on your body first of all. It gets really easy, healthy, happy. That's exactly what you do with your mind. That's why I teach that. People say, how do we let go of thought? How do we let go of all these emotions? How do we let go of all the stuff in the head? Train on your body, first of all. So you can really, 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 really relax. When your body's relaxed, great. Do the same thing with your mind. What do I mean? All of the stuff in your past, all of the anger, the guilt, the traumas of your past, they're like little tumours in your body. They're like little irritable Parent syndrome, <laughs> whatever it is, <laughs> instead of irritable gut syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, like chronic indigestion is like chronic fear, whatever it is, you know, it's the same sort of thing. So how do you overcome the aches and pains in the body? Be kind to them. How do you overcome all this pain and trauma of the past, fear of the future, anxiety? All these thoughts about the future of your business or whatever else it is which consume you. How do you 
relax them. Not by taking hold of them. Get out of here. If you don't sort of stop thinking like this, just like you tell the kid, go to sleep. That does not work. What works is being kind to your past. Being kind to your future. Soften the future. Soften the past. Then it's easy for it to disappear and let go. In the same way I've got an ache in my knee, if I can't move it, because sometimes you can't get rid of the past or the future, you can't get rid of your in-laws, you're stuck with them, they're part of the package when you married that person. Mother-in-law, have you ever heard that the word mother-in-law, if you rearrange the letters, spells Hitler woman? <laughs> Try and see, mother-in-law, rearrange the letters, becomes Hitler woman. True. I'm not going to say any more, I get in more trouble. <laughs> but you're stuck with these people. So be kind to them. Be mindful. And then they're not a problem anymore. My knee, if I'm kind to it, aware of it, it just relaxes. No problem anymore. My past, my future. When I'm kind to it, when I'm aware and kind, I can relax it all away. Now, what am I going to do this afternoon? What am I going to talk about? What am I going to be able to do tomorrow? You don't. To let go of the future, so you don't worry about it, you have to be kind to it first of all. So I look at the future. I, if I'm angry, I can think of all the bad things which are going to happen to me tomorrow. When I am kind, I think of all the good things which can happen to me tomorrow. That's a wonderful thing about life. You get so positive. All fear... Anxiety, worry, is looking at the future with a negative mind. Think of all the terrible things which might happen to you. Just like me, I go travelling a lot. The last time I had a big trip away from Australia was going to Europe. And it was just after those planes had got shot down by the Russians over Ukraine. And my disciples would say, this is not a good time to fly. Because from Australia... So England, you fly over that area. Not only that, you have to fly, fly over Syria as well. Yeah. And they say, what happens if you're forced to land in Syria? They take one look at you, infidel, white. You know, you're the first one for the chopper. <laughs> <laughs> so, I had a plan. I had a plan. If I had to do a forced landing in Syria, my plan was this my robe, I'd put a little slit in the bottom, put it over my head, <laughs> and it'd be my burqa. It's gone, never mind. That'd be my burqa. <laughs> and if I got shot down over Ukraine, I'd take off my robe, hold the four corners, Parachute. It's a really big robe, this. Three metres by two metres. So, <laughs> those were my plans. So I don't get worried. <laughs> you soften the future with a positive mind. And as for the past, all these things which people did to you in the past, you really want revenge. You want to get back at them for what they did. If you're a Buddhist, you don't have to worry about that. 
karma. We'll get the bastards anyway. <laughs> so it's wonderful believing in karma, so you don't have to do anything. Karma's going to get them, okay? So let it go, you can just be free. <laughs> so, when you soften the past with a bit of fun and humour, with kindness, you find that the past is not such an obstacle to you anymore. It's not just this hard lump in your mental body, which is so difficult to understand. I know many people tell you to let go of the past and future, to forgive the past, not worry about the future. It's impossible to do, for many of you, because you don't know how to do it. You can't just say let go. You have to be kind, first of all. Be kind to the past, be kind to the future, until it gets so soft, like any ache and pain in the body, it vanishes by itself. You relax. You relax the mental world. You don't try and control the mental world and fix it. You relax it. Once you relax the mental world with mindfulness and kindness, your mental world gets very peaceful. What you're really doing is you're taking away the winds of wanting or trying to get rid of things from your mind. So the waves get less and less and less. That's a way to be still. Not by making more waves, by controlling and fixing up things, but by being kind, letting things be, being aware. And then the whole mind gets so calm and peaceful. Past and future vanish. Present moment is just here. And you're kind to this moment. It's not the best. It's not the worst, it just is. And then because you're not trying to fix anything, as I keep telling people, you now become a human being. There's very few human beings in this world. Many human goings, many human doings, but very few human beings. Even on a retreat, there's very few human beings. They're always doing meditation. They're going to enlightenment. They're never actually being here, which is why enlightenment doesn't happen. When the mailman calls with enlightenment, you're not here. You're busy somewhere else. <laughs> That's why people don't get enlightened. We're knocking on your door, hey, enlightenment, and you're somewhere else. There's an old Zen saying, the hungry man was looking for a flame to light the fire to cook his rice. He was looking with a candle. If he only knew what fire was, he would have cooked his rice much earlier. <laughs> That's a good little saying there. Because we're always looking somewhere else for enlightenment, and we never find it. Because it's right here. Uh, I've been talking a lot, one little story, and then we can have a break, and then we can do some meditation. Is that a good one? What, what was my schedule anyway? <laughs> Who cares anyway? Everyone, this is one of my nice stories. It's in the new book. The title is Old Monks Don't Lie. It's a great meditation story. If you're sitting comfortably, here we go. There was, in our monastic tradition, many monks and nuns go wandering from place to place. Now, in the Thai tradition, it's called Tudong. In the Pali tradition, it's called Charika. You know, the wandering monks and nuns. So this monk 
was wandering from place to place. And he came to the house of a poor farmer for his alms food. And the, the poor farmer offered food for this monk, an old monk. But it was close to the time when the monks and the nuns go on retreat during the rainy season, the was season. And the farmer said, Venerable sir, have you got a place to stay for the retreat yet? And the old monk said, Actually, no, even though it's only a couple of days away. Please, said the farmer, come and stay with me. I have a field next to the river. It's very tranquil there. I can build you a very simple hut because it doesn't take much to build a small hut for a monk or for a nun. Go and see the huts where these nuns stay in. You know, in one of the forest monasteries, they're really simple. I was staying in one of them. In fact, when the first of our monks went to England, you know, that one of the board members of the people looking after them happened to be an economist, you know, as Colin Ash. And he also was an advisor for the Bank of England. And so people were asking, can we afford to look after monks? And so he did some research and did a calculation. And what he found was that it cost less to look after a monk or a nun than it does to look after a dog. <laughs> Your pets cost a lot of money and there's many similarities. Your dog lives in a little hut in the back, eats out of a bowl, and you can take them for walks, and they're always really kind, and if they could, they'd lick you. <laughs> if they had tails, they'd always be wagging when you came. <laughs> so once we have enough nuns, we can have like a pet shop, every home can have one. A nice little hut in the back. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have your own monk or nun in the back? <laughs> you know, you just feed them once a day, you know, and just when you need them, they're there for you. Sorry? Don't give them ideas. <laughs> Don't give them ideas. <laughs> anyway, so it's very, very cheap, actually, <laughs> to have these monks and nuns. So, the, even a poor farmer, it wouldn't cost that much. And the poor farmer said, but venerable sir, can you please come once a week to teach us some Dhamma, you know, maybe help us with our meditation and also teach our kids. And the monk said, yeah, sure. So he was built a very nice little hut and every week he would, you know, he'd every day come for food and every week you know, he'd teach this little family uh, some Dhamma and meditation and the kids got to love this old monk. Even the dog in the house used to love the old monk. So three months later at the end of the retreat, when the old monk came and said, it's time I was leaving. The men just, man and his wife just got down on the ground and begged the old monk not to go. And the children started crying because this monk they got to love was leaving. And even the dog put his tail between his legs and whined. He didn't want the old monk to go either. And the old monk said, I have to go. But he said, because you've been so kind to me, and because my meditation has been really, really deep during this retreat, I have discovered there's a treasure buried closer than you think. And I want you to have that treasure so you don't have to be so poor anymore. But, said the monk, you have to follow my instructions to the letter. 
Here are the instructions. Tomorrow morning, he said, I want you to stand at the doorway to your little hut and wait for the sun to rise. As the sun is rising, pick up your bow and arrow. And when the sun comes above the horizon, point the bow in the direction of the rising sun and let the arrow fly. Where the arrow falls, there you will find the treasure. And I guarantee that because I'm an old monk and old monks don't lie. And even though they were sad that the monk was leaving, they knew the next day they'd be rich. (laughs) So the following morning, the husband, the farmer, was out there really early, waiting, waiting, waiting for the sun to rise. As the sun began to rise, he picked up his bow and arrow, stood at the doorway of the house. As the sun rose above the horizon, he pointed the bow in the direction of the rising sun. He shot the arrow, went a long way, and they all ran after it, including the kids and the dog. Remember, this was Asia. So guess who had to dig the hole? The wife. Isn't that terrible? Be warned, guys. There's going to be some karmic result of this. So the wife had to dig the hole. She dug and she dug and she dug. And what did she find? Nothing. Only trouble. Because that arrow had landed in a field belonging to a lawyer. (laughs) And the lawyer came and said, it's illegal to destroy someone else's property. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to take everything you own. And the wife said, it's not my fault. My husband told me to do this. And the husband said, it's not my fault. This old monk said we'll find a treasure here. And at that, the lawyer said, did you say old monk? Yes. Because I'm a Buddhist too, said the lawyer. And old monks don't lie. What did he say to you? And when they told the instructions, the lawyer thought, I know where you made a mistake. Look at you. You're poor. You're malnourished. You've got no strength to, to shoot an arrow. I'll do a deal with you. I will shoot the arrow tomorrow morning and we will split the treasure 51%, 49%. In my favour, because I'm a lawyer. So he wrote out the contract, they had to sign it the following morning. <laughs> they were at the threshold of the house and this time the lawyer stood at the threshold waiting for the sun to rise. And as the sun rose, he picked up the bow and arrow, pointed it in the direction of the rising sun, and shot the arrow. And they all ran after it. The lawyer, the farmer, his wife, the two kids, and the dog. And when they got to where the arrow fell, this time the husband's job to dig the hole. Whatever you ask someone to do today, you're going to have to do tomorrow. That's karma. Be careful. So, the husband dug the hole. He dug deeper and deeper. And what did he find? Nothing, only more trouble, because this time the arrow landed in a field belonging to a general in the army. And the general came with his soldiers. He didn't matter about the law. Cut off their heads, each one of them. They're destroying my property. And the husband with the spade said, not my fault, the lawyer ordered me to do this. And the lawyer said, it's not my fault either. This old monk said there'd be a treasure here. And at that the general said, put away your swords, because I'm, I'm a Buddhist too. And old monks don't lie. What did he tell you? <laughs> and when they told him the instructions, the general said, look, 
It's obvious you're a mistake. You're lay people. You need to be in the military <laughs> to know how to shoot an arrow. Tomorrow, I will shoot that arrow and we split it just three ways evenly. No contract required, because I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so the following morning, it was a general standing at the threshold of the house. And how much time we've got till dinner? <laughs> <laughs> it's coming close. The general's turn, and the general stood at the threshold of the house, waiting for the sun to rise. And as the sun rose, he pointed the bow and arrow in the direction of the rising sun, and as the sun just came across above the horizon, he shot the arrow. That went a huge distance, and directly in the direction of the rising sun, because he was an expert archer, he was in the military. And they all ran after that, the lawyer, the farmer, his wife, the two children, and the dog. <laughs> and where it landed this time, of course, it was the lawyer's job to dig the hole. And the lawyer, sweating and panting, never done a hard day's work in his life. <laughs> dark and dark and dark and dark. <laughs> Any lawyers here, please don't sue me. <laughs> it's okay, I'm leaving in a few days. I'll get out of the country before the, <laughs> the affidavit come, whatever it is. So, <laughs> this time the lawyer was digging, digging. What did he find? Nothing. Nothing. He had any more trouble because this time that arrow landed in the garden belonging to the king. Oh, that's big trouble. <laughs> so the king had them all arrested, including the dog. <laughs> he was an accomplice and brought them in front of the king, and the king said to them, you're all in big trouble, because in this kingdom, that is a capital offence. You've been caught red-handed, I will have to execute you, including the dog. <coughs> and when they explained they were just following the advice of an old monk, the king paused and said, did you say old monk? Because <laughs> even the king was a Buddhist. And even the king knows, old monks don't lie. So he said, I'll give you a stay of execution until I find that old monk and get to the bottom of this. This is strange. So they put them all in jail, including the dog, and after a few days they found that old monk, brought him to the palace, and the king interviewed him. He said, old monk, you've got all these people, including a dog, into really bad trouble. <laughs> Why? And the old monks said, because, Your Majesty, they did not follow my instructions. And he said, what did you mean? And the old monk said, Your Majesty, I invite you to that poor man's house tomorrow morning. And I will invite you to follow the instructions. And I guarantee you that you will find the treasure. But I invite you, Your Majesty, to please share it equally four ways. Your portion will satisfy even you, a king. How much would it satisfy the poor family? And the king agreed. So the following morning it was the king. This is the last time, so don't worry about <laughs> having to go to the toilet. So this time it was the king's stood at the doorway of the house and he turned to the monk who was also there together with the lawyer, the, the general, the farmer, his wife, the two kids and the dog. They were all there. And he stood at the threshold of the house, he turned around to the monk, and the monk said, Correct, Your Majesty. And as the sun rose, he picked up the bow and arrow, 
Correct, Your Majesty. He pointed the bow and arrow in the direction of the rising sun. Correct, Your Majesty. The king was about to shoot the arrow just as the sun rose, and the monk said, Wrong, Your Majesty. I never said, shoot the arrow. I said, let it fly. And the king understood. He was holding the arrow between his thumb and forefinger. He opened up his thumb and forefinger, and the arrow flew straight down between the king's feet, right where he was standing. There they dug a small hole and found an immense treasure. <laughs> Enough that the little dog would eat out of a golden bowl, <laughs> the best food a dog could ever enjoy for the rest of his life. <laughs> and the moral of that story is, we always shoot the arrow of craving, of wanting. Wanting peace, happiness, jhanas, enlightenment. We always shoot it over there, over there, over there. And what do we find? Nothing! Only trouble. <laughs> and instead, you should follow the instructions. Let it fly. And it goes right here where you are sitting, right now in this place. And you don't have to dig very far. There you will find a treasure which satisfies even a king, let alone a dog. And there you'll find the treasures of peace, happiness, enlightenment. You let go of the arrow of craving. And where it lands is right where you're sitting. Right here, right now. And there you find the treasure of the Dhamma. And that is absolutely true. Because I am now an old monk and old monks don't lie. <laughs> Okay, let's, shall we have a break at 10.30? Let's have a break for half an hour. Is that okay? Oh no, what time do we have lunch? 11.30? Oh no, what time is lunch? It's only scheduled for 11 for you, but we can do it any you want. 11.30. Let's have a break for 15 minutes, and then we can come back and do some meditation. We can have lunch after meditation. After medita yeah, go on, please, sure. Yeah, sure. Announcement first. Hey folks, can you hold on for one second? So I just want to take this time so I don't interrupt your meditation or at the end to say how we're going to do lunch. And let me catch my breath. Um, so stop me if I'm incorrect here. We're just going to have, um, this would be a good time now if you brought food to come and prepare it. There's knives and cutting boards and things back there. Obviously we were not going to eat any of the food until after the food has been offered and blessed. But um, if anyone's not familiar with the process, we're gonna, what we're going to do today is one of the monastics will come up to receive the food. If you want, you can stand behind your offering at the table and you know just lift your dish up and the monastic will touch it and receive it. Um, and so one person will go through everything on the table like that. And then once that's done, all the monastics will go through the line and uh, put the food in their bowls and then come back and then they'll do the blessing chant. And uh, at that time, Ajahn Brahm will let you know that it's okay for you to go and eat. So if you have brought food for the potluck, now would be a great time to bring it out and um, get it ready. So. Okay, good, yeah. Thank you. Uh, so it's also a 15-minute toilet break. Come back about 10 to 11 if you possibly could. 
10.50, and we do a meditation till about half past or 20 past. Okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, I was only doing it before 12.25, you said. Around about, about 12.15, it's before.
Hello. Anyone there? Okay. This is an announcement from Buddha Air. The flight to enlightenment is leaving in five minutes. Please enter, otherwise <laughs> the gate will be closed. Mr. Chance. <laughs> We're going to do a meditation for about 20 minutes, 20, half an hour, roughly. Okay, time to sit down. Both. Double to make sure. Okay. Recess is over, children. <laughs> Please come to class. <laughs> you get it. Very good. Our donations, very good. Very good. <coughs> so please come in, get your money's worth. <laughs> They're still trying to go to the bathroom. Women's bathroom. That's discrimination. Isn't there a forest somewhere, a bucket? Use the old Buddhist tradition. Get a bucket and throw it over the wall. <laughs> Here we go. So you get those meditation um, chairs with the hole in the bottom and the little really? bucket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Hello. Ah, that's good. Very good. So I'm going to lead you in a little meditation uh, for maybe 25 minutes, 20 minutes. And it's going to be learning how to relax and let go. Relaxing first the body and then the mind to get to stillness and all the stuff in meditation you would really like. And after lunch session, whenever that starts, 
I'm going to invite uh, anyone who has any questions, as I did yesterday at what Buddha saw. You find a piece of paper somewhere and you can write your questions on the back. And one of the most uh, wonderful pieces of paper will be a hundred dollar bill and afterwards <laughs> I give the bill to the nuns. <laughs> no, just any old piece of paper. And <laughs> then you can leave them down here and I'll answer those questions on meditation or dhamma or life or whatever afterwards for the afternoon session. Because if you meditate after lunch, everyone falls asleep. So we have some questions and answers after lunch. Very good. So people are coming in. They'll always be coming in and going out. Such is life. So all of you already here, now's the time to close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, you have more space in your brain to be able to experience the sensations in the body. So only when you've got your eyes closed can you really know whether you need to adjust your legs, your back, your hands or whatever. So now's the time to make the adjustments to your posture. Now you've made the first adjustments, now adjust again. And also in this type of meditation practice, we ask everyone to have their eyes closed, which will make it uh, easy for you if you need to pick your nose or put your finger in your ear out of kindness, you can do that because nobody is looking. It's one of the great, <laughs> great advantages. So no peeking. <laughs> That's the old joke. Why have gorillas got big fingers? Oh no, why have they got big noses? Answer, look at their fingers. <laughs> so, keep awareness of the body, the awareness or mindfulness, whichever word you want to call it, allows you to have feedback. You can notice some parts of your body are still tense. If they are tense, irritated, or in pain, let your awareness be with that irritation. Notice how the feeling changes from <coughs> second to second. And see if you can notice that if you give kindness, letting things be, embracing, opening the door of your heart to that irritation, 
it gets less. It relaxes. Kindness gives a sense of safety. Only when you feel safe will you be able to relax. And you can imagine parts of your body being held tight, stretched by two invisible monsters. And those two invisible monsters letting go of the rope, allowing your muscle to loosen. There may be a knot of pain somewhere. You can imagine it expanding. Because when it expands, it gets less dense. And the pain gets less. So taking off all the pressure from your body. Loosening, relaxing to the max. Keep on relaxing the body until the body feels so open and no pressures, no pulls or, or pushes until you're letting this body just be 
Don't worry about whether your back is straight or your legs are crossed this way or that way, as long as you're comfortable. Just like your whole body sinking into the softest of cotton cushions. Like floating, free, no pressure, not tight, relaxing the body, relaxed to the max. When the body is relaxed, it feels delightful. Can you notice the pleasure of a body with minimal tension? When you feel safe enough just to let it be, holding nothing tight, letting the body do what the body needs. With no one judging you, no one criticizing you, you can just be. If you can notice the delight of relaxation, you may discover you get more relaxed. <coughs> You're being kind to your body. You could even ask your body, body, is there anything else I can do to make you more comfortable within reason? Whatever the body says, do it out of kindness and respect. So you're giving this beautiful mindfulness which gives you feedback and kindness which takes the body to deeper and deeper relaxation.
when the body is really relaxed and feels peaceful, delightfully peaceful, and that means you've let go, you've let the body be, you've stopped controlling it. Now you can turn to your emotional world, the world of your thoughts, past and future, present. Do the same. Be aware of the tension or peace of your mind. And see what you need to do to relax your mind. Stop telling it what to do. <coughs> if there's a particular thought of the past or the future comes up, be kind to it. Soften it like you did to your body. until your mental world gets relaxed. Remember your mind is like a lake and all these thoughts, emotions are just disturbances on the surface of the lake. All created by the wind of wanting something. So try not to want to get any attainment, want to be peaceful, want to be still. Just take away all the wants and just be. 
be kind to whatever you're experiencing right now. Not trying to get rid of it, but opening the door of your heart to this moment, no matter how it is. You never find peace by going on a journey. You find peace by respecting where you already are. Remember the job of mindfulness is to give you feedback. Are you getting more peaceful, more relaxed? And don't be concerned about sloth and torpor, dullness. That is part of the path. Just be with the tiredness, don't fight it, and it soon vanishes by itself like the mist in the morning when the sun comes up. And please don't try and prove yourself. You're fully accepted in this moment. So just be making peace with this moment, not war.
Please remember that little story of old monks don't lie. When you shoot the arrow of wanting anywhere, you only find nothing but trouble. Uh, let the arrow of desire, let it fly right here and land where you're sitting in this moment. This is where you find peace. Take away all the controls, all the orders. Not trying to get anywhere. Just be. You see peace build. With every moment you make peace, you have more peace. How do you feel right now? Unfortunately, it's getting close to the end of the meditation. Just spend a few more seconds noticing how you feel and understand why. Then draw in one deep in-breath, and on the out-breath, open your eyes. There we go. <coughs> We're going to pause for lunch, and then afterwards, have more meditation, more discussion, more jokes in the afternoon. <laughs> So the best is yet to come.
as President Reagan used to say. <laughs> That's a wrong thing to say because you're all Democrats in California. Okay, so are we going to pause for lunch? So have a nice lunch and we'll see you here. What time do you come back? About 12.30 or 1 or whatever. Okay, yeah. A bell? No. We keep, you haven't heard this already, no bell silence. I just brought up with too many bells and tape bells. I've got, I've got post-traumatic bell syndrome. <laughs> okay, let's go and have lunch now. Yeah, yeah, we saved the food. Is that okay? Oh, you got, sorry. You say it, whatever. I don't know what to say. Okay, folks, if you're having, if you're participating in the potluck and you'd like to stay for the blessing, please take your seats, unless you're going to the back table to do um, an offering of your food. Uh, for the nuts, we're going to come up and, and accept that. So if we could just get a little resettled, that would be great. And again, after Ajahn Brahm does the blessing, then you will all be welcome to partake in the potluck. And thank you to everyone for, for all that you brought today. It was a, it's a beautiful, generous offering. Thank you.